Thank you, Pastor Shar. Good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we will not be doing Q&A this morning because we have the privilege of taking part in the Lord's Supper. We will be doing Q&A the next three weeks, and uh, I believe you will have some questions. Let's get right to it. Over my three years here at Faith, I have been asked uh, by many of you, Pastor Brad, when are you going to tackle some, some of the hot topic uh, sexuality questions in our culture. And I've preached on this, uh, on that in different occasions at different churches. But lately, I've come to the conclusion that it actually is not helpful for a pastor to kind of parachute drop a couple sermons on human sexuality without a greater context. And so I really felt last summer, as I was on medical leave, I really felt a call to go on a long journey, to go take us on a journey in 2020 to wrestle with some of the questions that all of us have. And uh, so I thought, if I'm going to do that, I think I need to create uh, for all of us a good foundation theologically in, in which to think on such things, Okay. Now, we are part of a uh, particular group of people in the church. We are what is called Christ ones. And if you're here visiting with us and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ one, a Christian, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad you're here. You're always welcome here uh, to explore Christianity. Uh, Christianity has a, a, some specifics to it, just like any group of people. Uh, one specific is that we are a people born of a book, born of a, a story, okay? Uh, we call it the Bible, a holy library, 66 books in this holy library that we've compiled this way. <laughs> um, and, and I felt it'd be very helpful if in January we revisit the, one of the fundamental things about Christianity is the centrality of the Word of God. Okay, And we talked about how uh, the Word of God is uh, God's perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, and God's Word is best understood through His incarnate Word, through His Word in the flesh, Jesus. Jesus is the last Word to help us understand God's written Word. And then, once we had uh, gone through that in January, we then went through a series on uh, Christian decision-making. We talked about God's Word, and we thought, I thought, well, it would be helpful for us to process how do disciples of Jesus, how do followers of Jesus make decisions in light of God's written Word and God's incarnate Word. And so we did a series in February called Decisions. You can listen to it. Um, and then I thought, you know what? It's going to be very helpful in light of God's Word and the way Christ followers make decisions. I thought it would be very helpful for us to wrestle with, uh, why, does, why did God give these selves a body? Uh, what is the purpose of being an image-bearing person? And our, we talked about how our image-bearing, it's not just in our feelings and our emotions. We would say every part of us is image-bearing. And so these bodies are image-bearing. And what does it mean to tell the truth with our bodies? Uh, what does it mean to be made by love? Because God is love. What does it mean to be made by love to love? Uh, 
what does that then, how does that play out as we're making decisions and we have these bodies guided by the Word of God? How does that play out in terms of our relationships? Uh, for example, what if you're single? What if you're married? What if you're divorced? What if you've been remarried? What does God's Word say to people who have to make decisions about what they do with their body selves? So we've been on this long journey, and here we come to July, and, and, and these questions are hot topic questions in our culture. They're actually, I don't know if you know this, they're actually hot topic questions in our denomination. Okay, So Faith Covenant Church is part of what is called the Evangelical Covenant Church. And uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church has an annual meeting. And two weeks ago at our annual meeting, uh, two of our pastors and one of our local congress congregations was actually dismissed from the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, because they were out of harmony with our denomination's stance on uh, sexuality. Um, and... and we would state that uh, statement on human sexuality this way, uh, very simply, celibacy in singleness and faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. So what we're going to do in July, we're going to continue this series on the body. We're going to focus on the following. Today the topic is uh, sex and the fulfilled life. Next week the topic is the body, sex, and grace. The next week is the body, sex, and truth. And then the next week is going to be made out of the, the questions that you send me between here and then. Uh, because I'm guessing you're going to have some questions. You can send me those questions. Just so you know, if you send me an eel, email, if you send me an eel with a question written on it. No, if you send me, <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, if you send me an email with a question, I'd be happy to answer it. But I'm going to make that, an I'm going to answer it with a phone call. <laughs> uh, or a sit down over coffee because there's a very good chance I could spend the next two weeks just sitting down at a typewriter and answering emails. I'd be happy to talk to you about it, but let's do it uh, over an actual conversation rather than email, all right? Whew. Before we go further, let's pray. I'm going to pray uh, the words, some words from Psalm 119 that we've been using in uh, Discovery Bible Experience, and uh, the prayer goes this way. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. Turn our eyes from worthless things and give us life through your word. You made us, you created us, now give us the sense to follow your commands. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't always say this, I sometimes say it, I'm going to say it today, if you would take notes, you'll be my best friend, okay? And the reason is because we're going to cover a lot of ground and it might be easy to get off track and if you take notes, you'll more easily stay on track, all right? So please do so. If, if you don't, I, of course, will forgive you. So why is it? Why uh, why do the church and culture clash on the topic of human sexuality? I'd say the clash is the result of the way the church and culture answer this question. What is the role of sex? What is the role of sex? Many in our culture answer that question according to the values of the founding of our nation. It's... It, not a coincidence, but it, well, it is, it's kind of interesting that we're, we're talking about this today on July 7th, just after uh, Independence Day. In, the, in our Declaration of Independence, we read these words, 
all people are created equal, endowed by their Creator with inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of? Absolutely, yes. We Americans are blessed and we are grateful for those words. Uh, we Americans, we, lo- we love our values and we love our freedoms, we love our rights. I have the right to define happiness as I define happiness. I have the right to define who I am and pursue that identity without constraint or criticism. It's a free country. I have my rights. So what is the role of sex within that particular value system? Well, that's up to you to define, right? Uh, Your body is your own. Do what makes you happy, sexual or otherwise, as long as it's not illegal, as as long as it's consensual. You have the freedom to do however you so please. So that's that. That's kind of the way culture in America answers that question. Christianity is actually born out of a different set of values. In Christianity, we would say all people are created equal by God, endowed by their Creator with an image-bearing nature best understood in the person of Jesus. So, uh, uh, that image-bearing we understand through the incarnate Word of God, through Jesus. We are created by God to love God and love others. And in our scriptures, it's interesting, I don't know if you've thought about this lately, but we have a different understanding of rights. The Apostle Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, writes this. He says, while we have the right to do anything, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. In Christianity, we would say thus that our identity is a God-given identity. It is not self-produced or culture-produced. And we would say that um, God defines who we are, and because God defines who we are, We are created by God, and we live in the kingdom of God, which means the rule and reign of God. We surrender our rights to God, who is our Lord and King. So what is the role of sex within such a value system? Well, we'd say that's up to God to define. 1 Corinthians 6 says, To Christ ones, your body is not your own. Yeah, it doesn't belong to us. It's actually designed to be a temple, a vessel of the Spirit of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to flee anything that is outside of God's design for the purpose of these body selves that are made in His image, even to the extent if that means we have to constrain desires we've had for our whole lives. Now, you see why there's a culture clash. It actually makes perfect sense. It is a normal response. We have, uh, part of our culture says, the pursuit of happiness is the highest end. But in Christ, we say the pursuit of holiness is the highest end. And in Christianity, we would say, we can't understand what it is to be happy 
until we understand what it is to be holy. What does holiness mean? It means set apart for a sacred purpose. So these body selves, these image-bearing beings that is us, we have been, by God's design, set apart for a sacred purpose. And in bringing that body self under the lordship of our king, we understand what it is to live out that sacred purpose. So this is why we have a culture clash. Uh, so the rest of what I want to do today is, is really born out of helping us understand this, this little stream of thinking, actually this large stream of thinking. And here I'm going to give credit to pastor and scholar Bruce Miller, who wrote a book called Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning. It's a book that our staff is going to be reading, a book that our council is going to be reading, it's a book that I am reading. Miller makes the very subversive but very biblical point, sex is a God-given gift, but not essential for a fulfilled life. Now, where have you heard that the last month <laughs> or year? Is anyone saying that? Hmm. Can it possibly be true? Well, not according to our culture, and not according to many churches, actually, but what if all that that is saying not that, what, what if it's all not true? What if it's a lie? What if our culture and even our, cho- our, co- our churches have so misunderstood sex in our world, we've actually turned it into an idol? And what is an idol other than something we put faith in to give us something what only God can give us? So in the time we have left, we're going to go on a biblical journey. Miller prompts us to look at the ark of the story of God and the role of sex within that story. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at basically four parts of the story of God. We're going to look at creation, we're going to look at fall, the fall, we're going to look at redemption, and we're going to look at new creation. That's the large arc of the story of God. So let's start with the role of sex in the biblical narrative in creation. We've talked about this quite a bit, a bit in this series. Uh, Genesis 1, God spoke and creation was born. And on the sixth day, God created man and woman. And read this with me if you would. So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So the constant theme of Genesis is God created, and what God created was good. It was very good. And He didn't just create image-bearing psyches. God created image-bearing bodies made by love to love. The Creator made bodies actually ready-made to give and receive pleasure in an act of creation, procreation. Think about it for a second. The man, the first man, the first woman, God created you as a man or a woman. God created you. And when God made the first man and the woman, He he made them with nerves that produce a certain amount of pleasure within the system of the body. And it was very good. When the first man and the first woman, you know, made love the first time, God didn't say, oh my, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) No, it was part of God's wisdom. It was part of His very good creating. 
And then just to turn to the page, in Genesis 2, we have God's first exposition of marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. That one flesh is not just spiritual. It is spiritual. It's physical. It's physical and spiritual. And the the man and the woman were both naked, and they felt no shame. So right from the get-go, in creation, we can say that sex is a physical, intimate union able to bear fruit and multiply. That fruit might produce actual children, but it might bear the fruit of a, of a, a, a God-honoring, healthy relationship as well. And that's good. It was very good. Born into the system of creation is a beautiful, pleasurable, God-ordained, holy intimacy for man and woman. But then you turn the page, and of course, it all kind of falls apart in the fall. The fall is important to our understanding because Adam, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, disobeyed God, the Scriptures teach uh, that death and brokenness and distortion is unleashed upon creation. Think of a beautiful mountain stream and with just kind of a steady drip of antifreeze in it. That steady drip of antifreeze into that stream is going to corrupt everything in that stream. Everyone's going to swim in it, in this corruption. And so, this, this, in Genesis 1 and 2, the man and the woman, they have this right relationship with God. They have a right relationship with themselves, with each other, with all of creation. Suddenly, in the fall, that harmony, that shalom is broken. It's distorted, and the pages that follow in the Scriptures tell the story of the brokenness of the sexual relationships in humanity. Just three chapters later, God floods the earth, Genesis 6, and He does so because of the sexual immorality and the violence of the people. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> What's some of our struggles today? Our, sex, our sexual immorality and our violence, Right? Three more chapters after that, uh, Noah's son Ham commits an immoral act with his father. Genesis 6, we have Abraham sleeping with Hagar. Then the story of Lot and Sodom with attempts of rape and the offering of daughters to be raped. In sin, sex just kind of falls apart. In the fall, the the story of sex is a story of brokenness and distortion. Clearly, God's good world needs a saving. It needs a redeeming. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. So the role of sex in the biblical narrative, and here, this is going to be interesting, uh, so hang on tight. In redemption, uh, the role of sex in the biblical narrative changes just a little bit. It's not devalued, it's not dishonored, but up until the time of Christ, what we have in the Bible story is the story of the creation of a nation, and that nation is built up through family lines, the nation of Israel, built out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, The nation is created through procreation. The holy nation is built through procreation. Then the charge to be fruitful and multiply is given to Adam and Eve. It's then given again to Noah and his descendants. Abraham and Sarah's story is actually bound up in in childbearing. A wife has to be found for Isaac. But once we enter the New Testament, in the nativity scene, we have Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus. And then things kind of shift if you're just kind of following the storyline. Bruce Miller writes, we find no more such stories of finding a wife 
overcoming fertility or bearing children. Where before, the trajectory of God's story was conjugally created, in the New Testament, the new nation is spiritually created, a spiritually formed family. If you don't believe me, just, just you know, look at Jesus' words. Uh, Matthew 12, he's been teaching. He's in a home. Uh, some people come and they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. They want to talk to you. What does he say? He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So as we read the arc of the Scriptures, once we get to the coming of the Redeemer, Jesus, we see a shift from a biological family to a spiritual family. And the point is then nailed home in the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus brings his followers up on a hill. He has a commission for them. In the Old Testament, go, be fruitful, and multiply. Jesus wants them to go and be fruitful and multiply. But how does he do it? Go make disciples. And what's more... And I'm going to return to a point Kevin made well when he preached on singleness in June. Once we come to the point of redemption's story, once we, we get to that part, we see that singleness is actually elevated in the biblical narrative in a way that it wasn't really elevated in the Old Testament. Case in point, who is the most fulfilled person in all the Bible? Jesus, a person who never had sex, a celibate male, Fully God, yes, but fully male, fully male, with fully male testosterone, tempted in every way, the Scriptures say. Peace-filled, though, purpose-filled, content, content in doing His Father's will, even though it didn't make sense to the culture around Him. We see this later in the New Testament, second hero, also you know, a biblical superstar and a single male. The Apostle Paul doesn't pull any punches. He writes, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. He's referring to what? He's referring to his singleness. His point is, it's good to remain single. Why? Because single people like Paul, they have more ability to devote themselves to making disciples, to the Lord's work. So I think we can say with confidence... In the redemption part of the story, singleness is elevated and valued. What about new creation? What's the role of sex in the new creation? And here I'm referring to the afterlife. I'm referring to uh, after God has made all things new, after the resurrection of our bodies. When asked about marriage in the afterlife, what does Jesus say? I like the way the message puts it. At the resurrection... We're beyond marriage, as with the angels, all our ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. Now, there are different ways to process this. One way would be to say, well, in the afterlife, everyone is single. <laughs> Another way to process it is in the afterlife, everyone's married, because everyone who is in Christ is married to the groom because we, the church, are the bride of the groom. Jesus. So we could then say, in new creation, intimacy with God will surpass sexual intimacy. Now, 
what is my point in taking us on this biblical journey? Well, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible teaches life without sexual intimacy is not a deficient life. Now, trust me, sexual intimacy is a beautiful gift, and there will be a sermon series one day on that. (laughs) Uh, But no one is saying that. But the Bible, I believe, says that. Your life is not deficient if you're a virgin, if you die a virgin. It's not. Life without sexual intimacy is not a deficient life. The Bible also teaches then, though, life without Jesus is a deficient life. Well, yes, there are whole industries in our culture bent on convincing you to kneel to the idol that sex has become. The problem is sex is not the way, the truth, and the life. Sex is not the bread of life. It is not the water of life. Christ and Christ alone is the abundant life giver given to all who believe. So, this being the case, what is God inviting you to do, change, or pray about? If you're new to Faith Covenant Church, I ask this question just about with every sermon now. I think it's a good question to end with. What are you going to do with all this? You know, what, what, what is something, maybe, maybe you're, you're wrestling with this, you're like, I, oh, I don't know, I just have to think about this. Okay. Or I just have to pray about it. Maybe if you're single, uh, maybe this is an invitation to, to, to change the focus from I got to find a partner to I have to deepen my abiding in Christ. Maybe everything I'm looking for is here, and I'm going to trust if He's going to provide what's over here. Or maybe if you're married, maybe it's time to stop expecting your spouse to supply what only God can supply. Or maybe you've been bowing at the altar of pornography, hoping for a quick fix, you know, from something Christ alone can fulfill. Maybe this is the time where you say, enough, I, I, I need some help. And you, can, you confess it. You find a, a good counselor, you, you can come confess it to me. Just so you know, confession is a gift because it tells the truth, truth sets us free. You know, so maybe this is the week where you say, I, I, "Hey, I just I want to begin the journey of uh, sexual healing here from what I'm struggling with." Maybe this is the week, or maybe you're hearing all this and it's all new, and you're thinking, "I think the Holy Spirit, I'm feeling some sort of nudge in me to trust God with everything." my sexuality, everything, my relationships, my job. Maybe you've never, what we, call, we say in the church sometimes, we say crossing the line of faith. Maybe you've never crossed that line of faith and said, I give up, Lord. I think you're, I think you're probably better than I've ever imagined. I think you're good, and, and I'm going to trust you. Maybe this is the week you do that. Maybe today's the day you do it. If you'd like to do it, I'm going to lead a prayer right now. We do this often simply to give you an opportunity to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Let's pray. If you'd like to do that for the first time, uh, what I do is I'll say a line of a prayer. You can simply silently say it to God. 
We simply admit, we believe, and we commit. Lord Jesus, I admit I've been chasing after other gods. I'm going to trust you to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe you lived, died, and rose again to set me free. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to trust you with every day of my life into eternity, Lord Jesus. And for the rest of us, Lord, we are people who are drinking from a fire hose of what the world is telling us. Lord, I pray you'd give our church a deep, deep thirst for the centrality of your word. I pray, God, that we would be people who seek to uh, live off of the teaching of you, understood through the life of Christ. Deepen that thirst in us, God. And we pray, God, that we would be empowered, uh, even right now, as a whole church, as a whole body, a whole spiritual family, God, may we be empowered to trust you with every aspect of our lives, even our sexuality. In your name we pray, amen. We did it. Good job. Uh, we're going to continue on this journey. Uh, I, I think, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I think you'll enjoy the journey. Um, because um, I, think, I think it's important when you're investigating these things to, to, know, kinda, to know what people believe. So we're, we're going to be straight, we're going to be honest. You know, if, if you're, we're going to go investigate Buddhism, you'd probably want the Buddhist priest to be honest with you about what Buddhism believes. So I'm going to be straight and honest with you about uh, what I believe and what our um, denomination stands on when it comes to these things. So we'll just, we'll have an honest conversation and um, I, think, I think it'll be fruitful um, and give me grace along the journey. We're going to have people down front who'd love to